Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We're looking at life in the post-human landscape with Cal Flynn and her latest book, Islands of Abandonment. Cal Flynn is an author and journalist from the Highlands of Scotland. She has reported for both the Sunday Times and the Daily Telegraph and writes regularly for publications including Granta, The Guardian and Prospect. Her first book, Thicker Than Water, was the Times Book of the Year and dealt with the colonisation of Australia and questions of inherited guilt. She was made a McDowell Fellow in 2019 and currently lives in the Orkney Islands, one of which we'll no doubt be talking about later because it features in her new book, Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape. Cal, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us, first of all, what the idea behind this one is then. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, So it's a book about abandoned places, or more specifically, the ecology and the psychology of abandoned places. And what that means is that I go to uh, 13 places around the world, each of which I think sort of the, the story is interesting and it unfolds a certain aspect of the, the story of abandonment. So... Those places include the Chernobyl exclusion zone, the buffer zone that splits Cyprus in two. I go to the Salton Sea in California, which is a man-made sea that's sort of simmering away into nothing. And um, I go to a few places closer to home as well. Before we get into some of the places you actually visit, often more like dramatic scenes of abandonment, as you've just given some examples of. Actually, you talk about how there's just a lot of agricultural land, for instance, in Europe and America and Japan and elsewhere, that's just gradually being abandoned, gradually rewilding. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're seeing a, a demographic change across the world, really, on a grand scale. So in many countries, in fact, I think more than half of countries now uh, have a fertility rate that's lower than replacement levels, which means that um, without immigration, um, their populations would drop really quite dramatically by the end of the century. That pattern is expected to continue on into what's currently the developing world across the century. And so the global population will peak and we'll see this everywhere. But what we're seeing at the moment is places in like Japan, 
Spain, Germany, especially rural populations are decreasing, they're moving to cities and marginal land on a, on a huge scale, as I say, is, is falling into disuse. So we're seeing forest regrowth, we're seeing abandoned villages, whole ghost villages in, in bits of Spain and the scale is quite incredible. Um, and of course, you probably finished writing this book and have certainly released it into um, into this global pandemic that we're all living through now, which is, I mean, I guess in some ways has given us a taste. We're seeing parts of the world where human beings are no longer every day being an influence yeah that's right like uh there were all those sort of memes at the beginning of lockdown when people were talking about you know like nature is reclaiming the streets and you know that was a it's a little bit too soon you know but i think what those showed was how closely our our lives intersect with that of wildlife and how quickly should a place be truly abandoned wildlife might move in the places i look at tend to have been abandoned for decades um and so there's been a sort of process of what ecologists call succession of the plants sort of coming in colonizing a place the wildlife move in make homes there so yeah i don't know i think i think it's sort of been quite timely and as much as people have been looking for narratives like this following that kind of discussion on social media um and these are sort of taking taking those memes to their logical conclusion places where that's already happened so you start off in west Lothian in scotland i'm um, looking at something called bings tell us what they are they're massive spoil heaps and they date from the industrial age um so for a while in the 19th century scotland was actually the the biggest oil producer in the world and it was produced from oil shale so a, a, a type of sort of rock underground that was uh, mined and then superheated and the oil would evaporate off they'd capture it um, it was really cutting edge at that time and uh, it was really wasteful process. So these bings or sort of shale heaps or spoil heaps grew up all over the middle of Scotland in much the same way as, uh, I suppose, colliery tips are very common in, in the north of England or in Wales. Uh, and since then, they've slowly been recolonized by plants. They're, they're full of sort of rare species. Somebody did a biodiversity survey in the early noughties, a woman called Barbara Harvey, and uh, she found 350 species on the Bings, which is more than can be found in Ben Nevis, which is Scotland's largest mountain, and that's a triple SI. So it's amazing, actually, kind of the potential these quite ugly wastelands, I suppose, have for becoming biologically, ecologically important. So they might not look like anything. And the bings are only one example. I suppose I, I'm looking for a sort of case studies or, or places that can be emblematic of, of a bigger issue, because people in London might know about Canvey Wick, which is a former oil terminal, of which has become Britain's first bug reserve because of its invertebrate life. And uh, closer to me, there's our dealer, which is a bit of northern Ayrshire on the west coast of Scotland. That's a former dynamite factory. Uh, that's a huge site. And that's also becoming increasingly significant, especially for yeah, invertebrate life, reptile life, that kind of thing. And often these places that really run down. That's why I find it kind of beautiful. It's sort of you have to learn to retune your eyes to, to look again at the land around you and try not to look so much at the sort of picturesque or the that kind of pretty aesthetic, but instead look for sort of liveliness, you know, in <laughs> true life, you know, how how full of life it is. And, and places start to look very different then. One of the more famous and, I guess, sort of romantic examples of of this happening was in the the bomb sites, the bomb craters from from the Blitz in London, and obviously you talk in the book as well about obviously the same thing happened in you know Berlin and 
and, and German cities, not only do we see plants growing on these barren landscapes in places that we might not necessarily think they would, mm. but as you've already said, weirdly, often there's more variety of things that will grow in this place than in a, you know, a more established piece of land up the road. Why, why is that? Well, partly is lack of disturbance, like uh, these places, partly because they're so ugly or they've fallen from use or sometimes they're sort of boarded up. So this is kind of the case in Berlin, a lot, a lot of, so there's a, there's a famous example, which was a shunting yard for, for railways, but the railway leading to it became sort of useless because it was fenced off as part of the East West Berlin. Um, so it was no longer able to be used. And that's actually become one of the poster childs for this and where some of the research into this kind of brownfield ecologies first began. I don't know. I think it is a, it's a very poetic idea, this idea of sort of life alighting on the wreckage. And definitely that the, the bomb craters were also an early example of ecologists and biologists looking at the various forms of life that can find purchase in, in these sort of almost sterile sites because often they have been burnt but constantly there's this um, life all around us landing on things so there's there's this concept called seed rain and this is uh there's sort of thousands of tiny seeds that have been swept up by the winds and they're sort of around us in the atmosphere very high up and they just swoosh around and every so often they come down and it's this great sort of mixing process so you can't really control what plants are going to find purchase in these places but I think that's part of the beauty of it that's certainly one of the reasons that they're so biodiverse they're not really sort of recognizable as a particular habitat so they're they're not like forests they're not like I don't know sand dunes they're a mix of all sorts of different species especially ruderal plants which is a word meaning sort of weeds they they grow on the rubble um, and I think that's just really beautiful <laughs> well I mean we talked about the agricultural land that has gradually been abandoned and reclaimed and in the next chapter of the book you go somewhere where that's on a sort of you know rather extreme scale and that's to the, the former Soviet Union and you visit Estonia in particular and, and go and visit the site of a former collective farm. And before we broaden that out as to what was actually happening, what was that site actually like to visit? Oh, it was very, um, very eerie. You know, it's, uh, you can drive around Estonia and um, you'll see these buildings everywhere. There's these sort of vast cavernous barns and, and warehouses and so on that were used by the collective and state farms during the Soviet era. And this is the same actually across across the former Soviet Union. Basically, they, they had all the, the farmers gang up together and, and farm on an enormous scale. And so when the USSR collapsed, this system fell down too. And there's no real use in, in the current economy for such enormous industrial scale buildings. So I went poking around in some of the old buyers, like the, the barns for the cattle. And I don't know, they've got a very strange atmosphere. You know, they've, they've been empty for quite a long time now. Often they're, they're quite damaged by, by the weather. They've been stripped of everything of value. So you have these big empty spaces. Reminded me a little bit of a, I don't know, like an open plan office or, or something like this, or, or even, I don't know, like a spaceship that's just landed in the middle of the countryside because they tend not to be surrounded by towns or anything. It's a very strange architectural feeling. And uh, it, it does feel, I don't know if it's frightening exactly. Some of the places I went to did feel frightening, but these ones felt just derelict and like they'd been forgotten. Um, and I think, yeah, that's it. You, you, you feel these sort of tidal waves of, of, of economies sort of, 
washing over the land and withdrawing and, and this is what had been swept up by the tides. You mentioned this concept of secession, which is, you know, the, the sort of reclamation by nature of, of, of a piece of land. But very specifically in, in this chapter, you talk about how this process actually works. It goes through a number of stages. So um, I guess the model that people might already be familiar with um, is the one um, that was developed by Frederick Clements. And the, the idea is that it passes, as you say, through, through stages starting from bare earth, um, if we're talking secondary succession or primary succession, you start from no earth at all. And the idea is you start with the annual plants. So this is often like wildflowers, things that, that bloom very quickly. And they make the most of, of having a lot of sort of sunlight because that's, that's what these sites are rich in at the beginning. And then over time, things manage to take root. So you'll get perennial plants, you'll get small shrubs, different types of grasses. You'll get um, larger and larger plants. You know, then you'll start having things like brambles and so on and thorny scrubs and then that sort of prevents grazers getting in and then you start getting trees and then you get thick forest or at least that's the concept so it, it depends a little bit on on the climate and, and the soil conditions and so on because you don't always end up with a thick forest but certainly in a lot of um, European landscapes and North American landscapes um, where these studies were initially being done that's kind of the route you know the forest arrives and I don't know I, I guess um, yeah this is another another sort of scientific concept that is very practical and pragmatic and based on observations, but it also, I don't know, I mean, I'm quite sort of romantically minded and I, I, I find it quite appealing, this idea of, of forests sort of stretching out, reclaiming territory, all of this kind of thing. And certainly in Estonia and in countries like it, where the farming has, has withdrawn, you can go out into all the old fields, often the, the fences are falling down or they've been taken away or they're still standing but the gates are open and there's just nothing grazing them and it feels like you're walking into a sort of wooded meadow some places where it's very rich and fertile it's already forest in other places it takes a bit longer when I was there I think it was in September or October and so there was lots of things with berries on there was a, a space where a moose had been uh, an elk rather had been lying down on a flattened area of grass that was just enormous. And we were only really a, f a few miles, you know, half an hour drive out of Tallinn, which is a extremely modern, wealthy city. You know, it's, it's full of like tech companies. So yeah, the, the, the forest is really, you know, coming back and coming back quite quickly. Um, it's been moving in since the 90s and, and Estonia is now one of the most forested countries in Europe. There's a, a series of maps of the USA reproduced in the book. And i travel to the USA quite a lot I'm familiar with, with the with the northeast of the USA mm. and although there's you know of course there's lots of there's lots of wilderness lots of forest there it also does feel you know very built up compared to the sort of wide open spaces of of the west but actually the farmland that has been reclaimed by forest is it's nowhere near as deforested as it was say you know 150 100 years ago yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think also uh, partly to remember, you know, when you're driving around in, in places, often you're on the roads, you're on, you, you know, you're in the disturbed bits. Whereas um, I think in New England, it's gone from around 30% forest cover from, I think, the end of the 19th century to over 80% now. And so that's like a huge amount which has grown up on farmland that was abandoned, mainly because uh, there was basically better farmland inland like going west so people moved from New England 
west and west and west and, and a lot of New England was left to regrow and so there is a lot of forest land and that's I suppose why it's sort of famous for those fall colours now and um, but yeah I, I, I think I write in the book that you know the, the Walden pond of, of Thoreau's book is, is much more like wilderness now than it ever was then you know he lived on a on a forestry lot that had recently been chopped down so you know our vision of of wilderness is actually based on something a little bit strange but New England is you know very densely forest now and and it's seen a huge rebound in uh, elk deer all sorts of beavers bears you know um so things are are moving back in and it, it just needs time hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Cal Flynn, and we're talking about her latest book, Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape. And Cal, one of the things I was very struck by reading the book in a number of chapters is how quickly, for want of a better word, civilization collapses in terms of houses, in terms of the infrastructure. And well, it tends to think, you know, you could lock up your house and go off and travel for a couple of years and, and sort of come back home after that and it could just be dusty. But like I said, one of, one of the features is just how quickly, you know, a little bit of damage happens, a tile comes off the roof or a window breaks and the outside gets in and houses just start to fall apart very rapidly and, and, and no way resistible better illustrated than in your chapter uh, what I want to talk about next about two chapters about both about um, North America one about Detroit and one about Patterson in New Jersey again there's this sort of semi-romantic concept to highlight this in Detroit that they call the blight 
Yeah, absolutely. I find it a very provocative concept. It is the language that is used quite commonly in America to describe, I suppose, a neighborhood in decline. They will talk about a blighted neighborhood as one that's marked with lots of abandoned houses. I don't know. And I suppose a sort of atmosphere that they're trying to get across when they talk about this. Now, so this word blight comes from, you know, crop blights, this idea of a sort of vegetable disease. And I, I suppose it's used as a, an image, a metaphor. But the way that it's talked about in Detroit has sort of suffused the way of thinking too. Of people want to sort of cut it out. So people want to knock down the buildings. And, you know, in, in many ways, this does improve things. But you, you knock down these blighted houses, as you call them, or you board them up. And that sense of safety tends to return to the streets. So there's this constant sort of pull and tug in Detroit over, you know, the abandonment is, is taking place. And then local people or the government are trying to sort of I don't know, get rid of these houses or, or, or make them safe somehow, make, make them impassable. Um, because there is quite a strong link. And this, this is one of the other things I'm interested in, you know, the sort of impact of abandonment on, on the human mind. Um, there's quite a strong link between abandonment and sort of um, crime with danger of, of physical damage to property. So a, an abandoned house is much more likely to burn, but also all the houses in a hundred meter radius are you know in in detroit this is a very sort of vividly seen just because um crime does tend to sort of be attracted to these locations they offer a sort of hideout or you know often dead bodies are hidden in them all of this kind of thing which is why people are, are so sort of upset about abandoned houses appearing on their street and they want to sort of fix that and i do think i don't know that that atmosphere it can be a little bit difficult to define but people tend to be sort of frightened by abandonment even if it's on a small scale if you have an abandoned house next door and uh, it, it feels sort of wild and uncontrolled and you don't know who's going to use it and who's coming in and out and you don't know what's going to happen to it and sometimes it can become home to i don't know feral dogs or you know this kind of thing so yes i think that sense of of civilization or, or, or maybe society um, as being quite quite thin or certainly easily broken can be felt there in the streets where people talk about how a street might reach a tipping point beyond which it can't be saved. So property prices go down so much because it's, it's looking so blighted, so abandoned, or crime becomes so bad that people can't sort of live there anymore they don't want to so yes i don't know i i, th I think that's that feeling of of, of almost like a, fr a frontier feeling on those streets and at the same time there are people who hold out and they put a huge amount of effort into into trying to stop that advancing the blight advancing or, or whatever you want to call it so um i spoke to a, a woman who who mows her neighbor's lawns despite them having left years ago and she for a long time sort of hung cloth in the window to make them like lived in and picked up the papers on the front porch so it didn't look like nobody was there to pick them up and it's that sense of keeping up appearances and and maybe that's enough to to keep the blight at bay when you visit Patterson in New Jersey the sort of original sort of foundation of, Amer of American industry mm. and the sort of American industrial revolution and that now like you know most of that industry again is has gone and it's it's almost post-apocalyptic this chapter in that you encounter people that are you know trying to scrabble together a living like mainly homeless people living among these ruins yeah absolutely and uh i suppose that that was the feeling i mean in america i think i think it's fair to say you know that the, the sort of social safety net is is much less sort of 
visible and that was really obvious in some of the places that I visited in Patterson in particular where there were so many people living in this sort of complex of abandoned burnt out totally wrecked industrial mills and it was I mean the scale of it was was quite incredible you know we went in and it really felt like exploring people talk about urban exploring and that's one of the few times I really felt like it was exploring because it was so enormous and it was on so many different levels and there was forest and all these burnt out collapsing buildings to find our way through but yeah as you say you know there were a lot of people living there in sort of encampments or people also chose to go there so people sometimes have their own reason for dropping off a map and in Patterson I got chatting to a guy who just I guess likes to go there to hang out Um, he'll smoke he'll make friends he'd met people there and this sort of urge to go to a place like this meant that he was likely to have a lot in common with the people that he did meet you know super friendly guy and um, the fact that we were there was enough to spark a conversation so I went I went with like a a local guy called Wheeler who who's an urban explorer and he just he just loves going to these places you know he always has since he was a teenager and he talks about it you know as a being a kind of freedom he felt sort of trapped as a teenager I think a lot of teenage boys actually but I mean obviously I'm a woman so it it crosses crosses the line but um he he said that you know he was often felt trapped or angry and he could go to an abandoned place and just feel free you know sometimes he might break stuff or just hang out with people and and sort of dare each other to climb things and just feel a bit dangerous I don't know and I think we all look for that in different ways and I think there's quite a lot in common with people who go urban exploring or who go into abandoned places especially sort of these huge abandoned places that you see in in ruin poor and this kind of thing especially old hotels castles hospitals all of this kind of thing with the people who climb mountains and you know go hiking through forests certainly I find it to be a very similar thing if you're in an enormous cavernous space and it's totally wrecked and you look out and it gives you a sort of feeling of being small both physically and, and in time. And I think that's so similar to how I feel standing at the top of a mountain. And that's why I like to go mountaineering. So I don't know. I, th- I think there's definitely something, there's a commonality there in, in our psychology. Just a little bit up the coast, you visit a, um, a ship graveyard that is, the water is so polluted, so poisoned that they can't even move these old hulks of ships because it would disturb the sediment and then stir up you know unknown sort of horrors underneath it but even somewhere like this you talk about how nature has found a way and there is rapid evolution happening amongst certain types of fish that are able to eke out a a sort of meager life among that in that water yeah I guess this is a sort of it's a sort of silver lining chapter or something like that because it's not saying you know this uh, the the yeah, as, as you say, you know, they're incredibly contaminated, these waterways, um, again, dating from that sort of industrial revolution kind of time and, and after, right up until sort of the 60s, 70s, when some of these incredibly harmful chemicals were still being made. So there's dioxins, which um, were produced while they were making Agent Orange, and also things called PCBs, which we also have a trouble with in, in waters around Britain, especially um, for things like killer whales that gets very concentrated in in their flesh. Um, and so I, I suppose I, w- I want to be a bit careful about how I talk about this chapter, because it's not saying, you know, it's all going to be fine because stuff just evolves, because actually in many cases, things won't and things die. And that's why, you know, Newark Bay and, and many bays like it don't have rich marine life, you know, ecosystems. But I guess I'm saying is that um, 
given enough time, certain species are able to adapt. And, and there it's the killifish or, or there's a species called the tomcod. They've managed to do this thing called rapid evolution when they basically they meet a sort of bottleneck in survival because most of them can't survive. But some of them have got sort of strange genetic abilities to, to sort of shut themselves off to the pollution. So they do well and they breed and then the whole population increasingly becomes able to survive in these ways and then they start repopulating. So it's really exciting to see that some species are able to do this. It tends to be species that have um, a great amount of genetic diversity and they breed very fast so that when these mutations arise, A, they arise quite often and B, they sort of spread quite quickly. Um, so some species are well set up to be able to do this kind of thing. And I guess looking forward into the future, there's going to be species like these that that go on to do well. They're the ones that are surviving this sort of environmental crisis that are humans that we've caused. You know, we've produced all of these terribly poisonous, toxic substances. And now um, that's going to change the path of evolution. And it already has done surprisingly quickly. So I don't know. I, yeah, I guess it's it's positive because you can start seeing a way out. You start realizing that there might be light at the end of the tunnel, but that's not to say that, you know, we haven't done terrible damage, I guess is, I guess is where I'm going with this. And then next then, um, perhaps, I'm not sure what the word is, a, a, a story of um, a de-evolved animal. Um, I said we were going to talk about uh, the Orkneys. And so tell us about your visit to the Isle of Swona and the particular herd of cows. So I live in Stromness in Orkney and Swona is a small abandoned island um, in the Pentland Firth. So that's kind of between where I am and John O'Groats. There's two abandoned islands um, actually in, in that uh, body of water. One of them, Stroma, is, is a bit larger, but I was really interested in Swona because it has this herd of, of feral cattle that have been living there basically unhusbanded since 1974. So a family lived there, well, Several families lived there until the 1920s, and then only one family stayed on. And then uh, they grew older and older. And when the last members left in 1974, they left sort of a little bit unexpectedly due to health reasons. And they went to stay with family on mainland Orkney, um, or rather South Ronald's actually, one of the other islands. And um, they left the cattle where they were. And they sort of, I think, intended to move back and they intended to get the cattle and the family members were going to farm them, but it never really worked out that way. And so the cattle were just left and they just survived. So they had been fed and, and really cared for very well. And then suddenly overnight, they became wild, feral animals. And I think it surprised everyone when they did survive so well. And now there's been probably about 10 generations and they've been reclassed as a, a new breed of of cattle, I think because of the, the genetic drift that's happened over this time. And I don't know, they, they behave very differently to, to cattle as, as I know, certainly. So um, they're much more like, I guess, wild deer or wild horses. You know, there's a equal number of, of male and female cattle. And then, you know, there's all sorts of um, territorial dances between the males, they'll fight. The way that they talk about it is that there's almost like a, a, a king of the cows and the other bulls have to fall into line or they get um, exiled into one of the headlands. I don't know. I found that incredible idea of this sort of kingdom of the cattle and all these dramas unfurling, the civil war of the cattle that's been going on there for years. Uh, you know, that, that our cattle that are normally farmed would also be doing this should they be left to their own devices, which they're not, you know, they're, they're not usually allowed to sort of free breed and certainly not multiple males left to, to a herd for a long period of time. Uh, so there are a few, few places in the world where you, you'll find this, so there are 
small number of feral herds around the world, which are always of quite a lot of interest to scientists. And I know in, in remote farms in Australia, it's just not practical to, to husband them in the same way that we would here. But you, you get this sort of extreme cattle behavior. And I think that's just fascinating because they've got so much going on with them. You know, they, there's this whole social structure that we don't normally see. And they're surprisingly intelligent animals. Um, but yeah, no, they weren't, they weren't very pleased to see me. Um, they can be a little bit aggressive. Certainly the, you want to avoid them. And one of the strange things about being on this island, which was very eerie, I found it quite frightening actually being on Swona and being surrounded by all these houses in various stages of dereliction, some of them more abandoned than others, some of them really ruined. I was finding, you know, that these cow dead bodies everywhere because of course they're not being cleared up. And so they, they fall where they lie and um, then just over a period of months they will rot away and so there were several sort of I suppose rotting carcasses when I was there and it, it was shocking because actually you don't see that but I think I think experiences like this has really brought me it's opened my eyes to this sense of how hygienic our lives are and, and how we're sort of shielded from from a lot of things how how tidy everything is kept now and therefore how unaware I am at so many of the forces that are at work one of the messages of this book is a hopeful message that no matter if we melt down a, a nuclear reactor or um, import invasive species to another country or um, you know detonate one of the biggest overground nuclear explosions yeah. ever um, in lots of ways nature finds a way and surprises us in its resilience but as mm. you mentioned earlier in the interview and you mentioned repeatedly in the book this obviously is not a uh, you know a reason to sort of pat ourselves on the back and let the people that are polluting the world off or anything clearly there's still a lot of damage being done and so to finish off I want to talk about a um a rather terrible story, a rather terrible possibility in that when you visit the um, the Salton Sea in California, you talk about how there's a periodic sort of overblooming of algae and, um, you know, the sort of water gets sort of de the oxygen is taken out of the water and, um, and how this phenomenon has been sort of posited as one of the things that happened during like one of the um the biggest mass extinctions that's happened in in the history of the earth and and again with a sort of rising climate is potentially something that could happen again in the future tell us what actually happened yeah uh, so at the salton sea um i think i touched on this before it's a sort of a it's an artificial sea i suppose an inland sea or a, a, an, an accidental lake. sea an accidental sea exactly it was formed when a when an irrigation uh, waterway um, broke its banks and the Colorado River uh, the waters of it like rushed into this very dry desert playa which had in the sort of ancient past been been an inland sea but it hadn't been for a long time so it was really sort of high desert and so it created this uh, enormous accidental lake or sea that has persisted but it persisted for so many decades because they were using it as a sort of sump for uh, agricultural runoff so the there is a small amount of farming in that area. Or there has become much more since the advent of the Salton Sea. But um, they use fertilizers on it. So all the water that and um, fertilizers that are pumped into the fields run into the Salton Sea. And so that kept the water level artificially high for a number of years. And otherwise it would have just sort of evaporated away rather quickly. But what that meant was essentially it was getting a much more sort of concentrated soup, you know, of um, fertilizers, salt water, 
Um, and all the time it's getting more and more soupy. And so to begin with, that had the effect of making it sort of very fertile or, or you know, it was very good fishery for quite a while. And there was an industry um, that sprung up there of sport fishing. They released fish into it. They proliferated. That was very popular. It became a sort of, they called it the Salton Riviera. It was like a holiday destination, very popular. But then this kept happening. And basically it's now gotten so salty and so full of weird chemicals and so little water that um, you get these, yeah, algal blooms. So they're bright colors, often they're red or green, depending on what's happening. Um, they smother the fish. So there's been enormous fish die-offs, I think 10,000 at a time. You know, so actually the beach that, that lines the shore is now made up basically of, of, of fish bones and sort of dead barnacles. It's a whole place has this terrible smell. It's kind of beautiful if you, if you hold your nose. Um, but it's, yeah, they, you get this sort of neurotoxic algae. You get other kinds of algae that just, um, it sucks the oxygen from the water and all the fish die. And so this is an example, according to um, this, this American, I think he's called a paleoecologist. And so he's got a theory called the Medea theory, which is a sort of um, evil opposite to, to James Lovelock's wonderful, beautiful Gaia theory. And it's the idea that the earth is somehow suicidal. So it gets locked in these, um, what's the word, like a, a, a vicious cycle. So something will happen, it will trigger something else, it makes everything much worse, like feedback loops. You know, we, we talk about this quite a lot in the context of climate, about how one thing might start happening and then just makes it just exponentially worse. So, you know, it might be like the melting of the permafrost, releasing methane, which makes everything worse, this kind of thing. In the context of, uh, of these algal blooms, this idea is that those enormous blooms and they they release these gases and they kill things and they survive it it kills everything in the water he thinks that this is what happened during the great die-off which is a permanent extinction which killed off i think it's 99 of all life on the planet or certainly all life in in the oceans it was uh the great dying you know almost everything on the planet was wiped out it really was almost an end to life so he he talks about them in in the context of this of saying you know periodically as you say there are these sort of something will happen with the ocean currents often this to do with temperature um they form feedback loops we start getting these algal blooms and that can kill everything you know it's very frightening because it, it is you know as you can see at the Salton Sea when you're picking your way through these, you know, thousands of skeletons of, of fish, it, it is very much a, a danger, you know, that these things can sort of rapidly spiral out of control. So Peter Ward would call this a Median event when um, things just get worse and worse and worse and worse um, until almost everything is dead. And so I suppose I, I looked at the Salton Sea as, as a sort of example of this, as a way to discuss climate change and, and the potential scale of the problem facing us. Um, he does say, you know, we, we need to have carbon in the atmosphere much higher than we are at, but then also level is shooting up at, at record pace. So it's not, it's not out of the question that this could happen, especially if we start hitting sort of feedback loops of, of the kind I was discussing. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess what I wanted to do was um, look at this. And, and in the previous chapter, I talk about Montserrat, which is the island in the Caribbean, where the capital town was evacuated by volcanic activity. The reason I talked about that, as well as it being, I don't know, an incredible place to visit, you know, it really is uh, enormous. And, and all the, so the centre of the town is flooded 
by volcanic ash, like meters of it. So it's completely covered in the center of town now. You can't see anything. But the suburbs are um, abandoned. They've been evacuated and they're in zone V, which is a sort of no-go zone. And so they're grown through with tropical plants and, and forests. They're becoming part of the jungle. Um, so it's really a, a very large town. So, you know, visiting there was a, a story in itself. But the way that I was looking at it was that it was a way to talk about the impact of climate. So volcanoes impact upon the climate, especially super volcanoes, which probably started off the Permian extinction and humans impact on the environment. We are the super volcano. That's, that's the, the scale of the impact that we're having. So I don't know, I suppose it's, it's looking forward to the future of saying, you know, it's, a, it's an incredibly optimistic book, I think, but I'm saying that I'm not madly optimistic. You know, we have to, we have to stop that happening you know the, the nature can recover it can rebound it can adapt it can evolve and that's wonderful but it can only it can only move so fast and so we have to avoid spinning out of control because that's that's when we see events like what has happened in the Salton Sea but uh, that's when it starts happening on a larger scale it will not be not be a nice time. <laughs> So I've been talking to Cal Flynn. We've been talking about her latest book, Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape, which is out now in the UK from William Collins. Cal, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. No, thank you so much for having me on. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.